Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And glad you're with us this week. The last few years of defense spending has seen a massive increase in the amount of money being spent through other transaction agreements for technology development. The Navy's been a relative latecomer to OTAs, but the approach is taking off now in a big way in the areas of information technology and cybersecurity in the Navy and the Marine Corps. In August, the Navy Department announced it was increasing the ceiling value for its Information Warfare Research Project, OTA, to $500 million. That's after IWRP exhausted its initial $100 million ceiling in just a little over a year and a half. To talk about how that happened and some of the technology that's come out of IWRP since the OTA was first signed in 2018, we have two guests with us from Naval Information Warfare Center Atlantic, the organization that manages IWRP. Kevin Charlo is the Deputy Executive Director and Chairman of the IWRP Executive Steering Group, and Don Salee is the NIWIC Atlantic Acquisition Services Manager. Charlo is the first voice you'll hear. The IWRP effort has been a, a very large success. We, we've been able to uh, promote this uh, both internally and across uh, with our, our sponsors um, uh, to identify requirements uh, that, that uh, fit a rapid prototyping construct uh, with ultimately the goal of, 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 of getting things into the warfighters' hands quicker than in, in previous uh, other contract strategy approaches. And, um, and, and so we continue to uh, identify new requirements. And as the word gets out and people get more comfortable using this, t- this type of uh, vehicle, the available ceiling has been used up. And, and so we, we are pleased about that and, and looking forward to the future. And Don, I'll turn it over to you for additional information there. Yeah, sure. I, I would tell you uh, success uh, of this uh, was in very large part not due to the to our Navy's leadership, uh, and the reason I tell you that is because it, it takes you know strong leaders to be able to look at things differently, encourage uh, those innovative ideas and those innovative concepts within our workforce, uh, and and that was just that was the catalyst that we needed. So once people started using uh, IWRP, um, the collaboration and engagement that they were getting. Um, the access to newer uh, advanced technologies, more innovative technologies, uh, more commercial type applications that, uh, you know, the Navy may have not been completely familiar with or how they could be applied to our, our needs, our specific needs within the Navy. Uh, it, it just, it, you know, it just kind of fed on itself and, and eventually got to a point where, uh, you know, we, we looked around and we're, we're out of ceiling and, uh, it was time to, to start looking at uh, figuring out what other capabilities we could execute uh, through a request of another ceiling increment. When y'all first started out, I think the expected customer base was really just the, at that time, Spay War, now NIWIC PEOs. Has the, you know, the user base or the customer base for IWRP projects expanded beyond that since then? Um, so this is Don Salee. Um, I, I would say yes. One one of the great things about this was that we never, even though the initial application was through NIWIC Land then Space War Atlantic, uh, really the application we want to make it open uh, across uh, the naval workforce, right? And when I say naval, I'm not just talking about the Navy. It was Navy and Marine Corps. So we've seen a tremendous uh, amount of project requirements and interest outside of of NIWIC Atlantic and in NAV War. 
Uh, we've, we've supported prototyping projects for the Navy. We've supported prototyping projects for Office of Naval Research, um, for Office of Naval Intelligence. Uh, we've, we've executed uh, prototype projects uh, on behalf of NAVC. So, you, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's working, uh, and that success story is, is, is getting out there, uh, and we're seeing more and more interest, uh, not only by our, our workforce within the command, but also external to NAVWAR. What, what do you think you've learned over the last two years about the OTA process itself and, and how to use it most effectively? I think um, w- some of the things we've learned is, is uh, that we have to <clears throat> continue to, to work with uh, program management offices and to integrate in to their contract strategies going forward and this rapid prototyping and leveraging the mid-tier acquisition uh, capabilities that uh, the Navy leadership is is providing us to, to leverage, and and so the, um, the the day-to-day mechanics of, of using an OTA is one thing, and how do you get a, a, an opportunity to evaluate and then award? Uh, but but longer term, going into how do these things roll into acquisition strategies and then become programs of record are are just ongoing discussions that uh, that we continue to have to to educate and and promote, if you will. Uh, to to increase the usage, and and as you have those conversations with the PMWs, Kevin, I mean, what do you advise them as far as you know which projects are most or, or what types of technology questions are, are best best suited for an OTA versus some other kind of let, let's say more traditional acquisition pathway? Well, I guess you know, looking at the different technology areas, we've got I think 14. We just added a 15th um, for DevSecOps. Uh, so when you look across the information warfare spectrum of, of technology and capabilities, it, it, identifying kind of those gaps and challenges, and then using a, a, a rapid prototyping construct of OTA to get to. Uh, these uh, non-traditional vendors, um, that, that's what we're really trying to convey there. And so it's, it's again, trying to understand where the problems and gaps uh, for the current programs of record or, pro- or PMWs and um, promoting, pushing these ideas out for, for proposals to come in and, and trying to get to, to a prototyping event. Can you give me some kind of sense of, of what proportion of the overall projects that have gone through IWRP have gone out to the fleet in some way, whether that's in a follow-on production contract or follow-on production OTA, really, or whether it's been, you know, onboarded into a program or record, you know, transitioned in some way from the consortium to something else. So, so what I would ask you before I answer that question is is to really kind of think about it differently. Um, there is a lot of of emphasis on uh, using the authority 2371B or 10 USC 2371B. Um, and, and it's very clear that, you know, if, if you meet the conditions of that authority in your execution of the prototype and that prototype is successful, then it becomes, uh, you know, an opportunity for a full production run of that prototype uh, and insertion into the fleet. What I would offer to you, though, is how you gauge the success of a prototype is by putting that technology in the hands of the operators, mm-hmm. the folks that are going to figure out whether or not that technology application will work for them and it will support their requirements. So um, I, I look at it from two perspectives. So the first perspective, the direct answer, if you ask me, 
uh, how much of these prototypes uh, and the technology or how many of these prototypes and the technology associated with it have gone into the fleet, I would tell you 100%. Uh, if you ask me how many we've transitioned uh, to uh, OTP, like other transaction for production, I would say that we're going to have two to three awards in fiscal year 20. Those will be the first for the Navy, so we're very excited about that. Uh, we have a number of opportunities uh, that we know that are coming up for OTPs in 21. So we're even more excited about that as well. Um, but I also have to, you know, the other thing that we have to communicate as well is, you know, there's always a period of performance, a period of time that that prototype has to go through it. So um, so what, what you're seeing right now, the, the first OTPs that we're working on for FY20 are results of prototypes that have completed their period of performance since award. Um, and, you know, we're transitioning those technologies. We have you know, 50 plus other uh, prototypes that are still very much going through milestones, very much going through demonstration and testing. Um, and, you know, I would imagine a large number of those will end up going into a production environment as well. And, and just to be clear, when you say 100% of the projects have made it out to the fleet, you, you're, you're really mainly just saying that a, a sailor or marine has touched it in some way as part of the process. Yes. That's Don Salee, the Acquisition Services Manager at Naval Information Warfare Center Atlantic, also talking with Kevin Charlo, the Deputy Executive Director of NIWIC Atlantic. We'll come back and talk more about some of the specific examples of prototypes that are now moving into production as part of the Information Warfare Research Project Other Transaction Agreement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. Talking about the first couple of years of progress under the Navy's Information Warfare Research Project and other transaction agreement that just got a ceiling increase earlier this year to $500 million. Our guests are Don Salee, the Acquisition Services Manager at Naval Information Warfare Center Atlantic, and Kevin Charlo, the Deputy Executive Director of NIWIC Atlantic. And Don, before the break, you mentioned a couple of IWRP prototypes that transitioned to production in 2020, and, and I think two more slated for 2021. Wondering if you could share some details on what those projects actually are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we actually have uh, four different examples uh, because we wanted to try and uh, make sure that we were showing a clear uh, representation across the fleet, both Navy and Marine Corps. Um, so, so the very first one was uh, OTP that we're working on. It was the very first award for NIWIC uh, for IWRP, and that was uh, the Low Altitude Range Control, or, excuse me, Range Communication System, uh, LARCs. And, you know, what was really uh, the technology investment that was going on in the prototyping that was going on there was something that was supporting range operations for Marines uh, that, you know, conducting war games. So from, a, from an air to ground uh, maneuverability aspect and, and making sure they had reliable communications and they were able to deconflict uh, different components that were, that were in those exercises, just making everybody more safe uh, through the conduction of the, those uh, communication channels. Um, so in that instance, um, that, that prototype was plugged in down in Townsend, um, uh, just south of Beaufort, South Carolina, um, and, and it was tested by the Marines. Uh, they've been using it to operate um, and, and you know do different uh, testing and demonstrations on that. Uh, so, so that's the very first uh, OTP that we're looking at transitioning. 
Um, so so that's we're very excited about that one. Um, a second one was a defense health management uh, a prototype. And what's really important about that one is um, it, it, it really gets at the root of uh, an authoritative data um, capability uh, for that that members, that military members and their families' uh, medical history. Um, you know, all, all the stuff that's necessary with, with those uh, medical records, x-rays, uh, dental appointments, uh, dental procedures, all that stuff. So just trying to make sure that that uh, information is consistent so that when that member transfers from one base to another base to another base, uh, you know, they're not having to, to regenerate new data uh, and then have a possibility of data kind of mismatching between the two locations. And uh, d- does that fold into the larger DoD EHR system that's still in the process of deployment, or is this something to kind of perform that function until MHS Genesis is actually fully deployed? I'm not totally understanding what what role this prototype or uh, will actually play. Sure. So you know what you have to look at is even while we uh, employ these larger enterprise uh, type tools and applications, there's there's still individual components within that system um, that, that have to go through routine uh, tech refreshes and, and, um, and, you know, in some cases improvements for user interface uh, applications and those types of things. So uh, this, this particular prototype uh, was a, a part of a larger system of systems approach. Um, I know that our IPT leads are, are working towards uh, this technology being infused in a much larger picture of defense health. All right, and I, I may have interrupted your train of thought there. Was there were there two more forthcoming ones you wanted to mention? So one of the ones for FY21 that we're working towards uh, uh, production level agreement is a Naval Enterprise Service Desk. Um, so you know when when you think about it, whenever our members have um, issues with travel or having issues uh, trying to get tech support for their uh, network connectivity, their laptops or IT hardware, whatever whatever that may be, they, they call the Navy Enterprise Service Desk. Uh, so this prototype specifically went to uh, addressing and trying to basically implement um, very similar technologies that you might get if you were to call up Amazon for tech support or, or Google, where they're using a, uh, artificial intelligence and some predictive analytics so that, you know, um, so a, a member calling in to, to get that tech support can actually a lot of times get a lot faster response by that automated capability um, and to, to help address their to address their concerns or technology challenge. And in doing so, uh, that helps reduce the total number of human touch point responses uh, by those supporting Navy Enterprise Service Desk. So you're looking at efficiency, you're looking at reduced resourcing requirements. Uh, which is going to re- result in, in cost savings to the Navy holistically. So that's that's a third example of what we're transitioning into production. Um, another example and the final example I would just offer up to you, uh, which we're really excited about, is is a uh, Marine Corps additive manufacturing ship to shore uh, supply capability. So what this prototype was centered around was uh, taking a additive manufacturing capability and putting it in a full or deployed uh, fleet element. So if you think about amphibious warships uh, that, that have Marines that need to get from, from ship to shore uh, and they have to get uh, resupply, uh, those types of things. This particular prototype was geared towards addressing that need to 
basically 3D print a uh, water-capable, for lack of better terms, a barge uh, that would allow um, either you know you know 15 Marines to be transitioned to the shore uh, or um, you know resupply uh, uh, ISO containers or, or water and fuel delivery and it was meant to be expendable as well. So, you know, print, print it on the ship, uh, use it for what it needs to be used for. Uh, if, if it doesn't make it back, uh, then it's a low, low investment from the operators, right? So that one, um, there was a lot of lessons learned with that. That was a successful prototype. I would mention that, very successful. That one's going through an iterative uh, prototyping capability. So the Marines are uh, taking the lessons learned from that prototype. Uh, they're looking at different applications uh, that they may uh, work towards uh, iterating that prototype. So that that was the the final example I would give you. Very exciting uh, about that. Um, it just really shows the the advanced technology and capability that we can put on board ships, and and that forward operator uh, support in a very rapid manner. That one's kind of interesting because it's kind of out of the bucket of what I would traditionally think of as an information warfare technology. But I mean, is that is that illustrative of kind of how the scope of IWRP has expanded over the past couple of years? Well, I wouldn't say they expanded. That's That's been the scope. Uh, as Mr. Charlo mentioned, we did add DevSecOps uh, as, as a specific technology area recently. But um, if you take a step back from the additive manufacturing um, title and think about the technology necessary for that additive manufacturing technology to be applicable, then you start getting into the information warfare domain. So... When you're talking about having different additive manufacturing capabilities connected back to, uh, say, a, a stateside uh, capability, uh, and pushing, you know, um, 3D print um, model drawings and stuff like that to that additive manufacturing capability forward deployed. Now you're talking about cybersecurity. You're talking about transmit receive capability, uh, and and a lot of those things. So. Um, that that's really where it starts crossing that domain into the information warfare uh, arena. That's Don Salee, the Acquisition Services Manager at Naval Information Warfare Center Atlantic, also talking with Kevin Charlo, the Deputy Executive Director of NIWIC Atlantic. They're back with us for one more segment after another quick break. We'll wrap up our conversation on the Navy's Information Warfare Research Project, OTA, and how it's working on Federal News Radio. Part of the Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few more minutes with Don Salee, the Acquisition Services Manager at Naval Information Warfare Center Atlantic, and Kevin Charlo, the Deputy Executive Director of NIWIC Atlantic, as we talk about what the Navy's learned and accomplished so far with the Information Warfare Research Project. Um, wanted to ask about the consortium model itself and, and how it's working. How, how satisfied have you been with the industry base that you've had available to you within that consortium? And also, how much churn has there been in and out? Have a lot of companies joined over the last two years compared to what you had when you started? We've seen a, um, a steady increase in, in membership of the consortium. So I think from um, and, and we just recently had our internal uh, steering committee meeting and talked about the the health, if you will, of the consortium, and it, it is in increasing. You know, so we're we're seeing that, and then the the number of engagements between the government and the industry exchanges has um, has also 
uh, been rather strong. And, uh, and so I think from, from that perspective, um, uh, we feel good about where we are and, and the interaction and the production, if you will, of leveraging this, this OTA construct. Yeah, so, so I, I would uh, I would add on to that that you know when we when we first uh, set up IWRP, uh, you know based off of uh, some other uh, information that we received with uh, similar consortium based uh, approaches uh, in other defense um, uh, areas, you know we were really looking at uh, we may have 250 to 350 companies uh, consistent within the consortium. Uh, and that was really where our expectations were set. You know, today, uh, after really just two years from the from the award, you know, we're sitting at a little over 630 companies. The intent of you know the the opportunities by using OTs is is getting to that non-traditional technology environment, getting to those uh, smaller businesses, mom and pop organizations. And you know, I'm happy to say that within IWRP. Now we've been setting between 75 and 78 uh, percent consortium representation at that non-traditional uh, defense uh, partner level. So uh, we we are getting a lot of value uh, out of those new ideas, that that innovation. Um, so that's very exciting. When you go back and look at uh, what we call our execution start, which was what we said, okay, here's here's the date that we're going to infuse. Uh, workflow into the consortium. Uh, it was, you know, one October, uh, and we were looking at just at about 100 members. So one October uh, of fiscal year 18, uh, actually, excuse me, fiscal year 19, uh, we're looking at 100 members. Here we are, we're sitting at 600. So that, that's been that's been huge uh, from from an execution perspective. The other thing I would tell you too is that the collaboration that occurs in there. Mr. Charlotte was kind of mentioning it. We have had a little over 800 structured uh, government to consortium member engagements. Um, and that has been huge uh, into helping our workforce understand uh, what newer technologies are available. Uh, and, and it kind of helps them uh, formulate when they're looking at those, those requirements from a technology perspective. It helps them formulate better ideas, better concepts of different types of approaches to meet the technology requirements that we have uh, that we may not have otherwise uh, been been uh, been available to to find out uh, if we were using you know our more traditional uh, acquisition methodologies. You said 75% um, of of the member companies are non-traditionals. That is quite high. Um, it is who's actually performing the work though? Is 75% of the work being done by non-traditionals? Not quite at 75%. Uh, we actually just ran some statistics not too long ago because, uh, you know, we're always trying to, to, to kind of see where we're at. So, so to date, 65% of all the awards, uh, prototype awards we made to date uh, has been to a non-traditional uh, defense partner. And what's, what's even more impressive about that um, is that that remaining uh, 35%, uh, the company that, that got the award, they have two options. They can either um, provide a one-third cost share of the cost of the prototype, or they can partner with a non-traditional to perform a significant scope area of that prototype. Uh, we have not had a single cost share prototype yet. So when you really take a look at it, we have 65% of the uh, prototype 
that's awarded to date are primed uh, to uh, prime award to a non-traditional. And then we have non-traditionals performing significant scope of prototypes for that remaining 35% that was awarded to a, a more traditional defense partner. Um, I know I know we're running short on time here, but I wanted to ask, when you guys first set up this OTA, the reason I was told you chose the consortium approach, or at least one of them, was that you were hoping that you would get some unsolicited proposals to problems that you didn't know could be solved <laughs> from companies inside that consortium. And I, I'm, I'm just curious how much that has actually happened over the past two years where, where companies have come to you and, and said, hey, look at this great technology. So we, we, uh, we started uh, something within IWRP called Industry Initiated Ideas, um, and, and it was an attempt to get to at least putting a very broad topic out and trying to get companies to provide responses to that. Um, and, and, you know, being, being new to this environment, uh, we took some lessons learned from that. We went back and reformulated it and we, we built these, uh, opportunities called technology collaboration exchanges. Um, and through that technology collaboration exchange, we partner, uh, government requirements owners with consortium members, um, to have a general discussion about technology outside of a specific requirement. Uh, and that has been hugely successful and hugely beneficial, uh, both for the uh, consortium membership as well as, as our acquisition uh, technology requirements owners. Just understanding uh, the more relevant technologies that are available um, that, that we can pull into the fleet. But I get it on, on uh, yeah, not, although it's not unsolicited, uh, we do have what, what we'll call what we call a basket provision. And um, so these are these are proposals that come in that that don't um, aren't awarded a, 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 a contract uh, or or a task, and but it allows us to data mine that for other gaps going forward. So the idea that that uh, we, we we're almost crowdsourcing at these proposals that aren't used for future potential problems that may come in or gaps and things of that nature. All right. Well, uh, last last quick thing here. Um, this fairly substantial ceiling increase. You went from 100 million to 500 million, and you've got a little over two years now to to execute that. Based on kind of the pacing that you're seeing right now, um, do you think you'll actually use the whole 500 million dollar ceiling? Yeah, I'll, I'll start. I, I, we, we based on on the requirements uh, from several sponsor areas. Um, uh, particularly in the in the 5G arena that we we anticipate, we do feel like uh, uh, that that there is a um, uh, high probability that we'll we use uh, that ceiling up in that two-year period uh, with with some of the uh, requirements that we're anticipating uh, in over the next two years. And, and Don, I'll let you add to that if you have it. Yeah, just to provide a, a quick relevant metric, if you will. Yeah, when when you go back and look at the forecasting that we anticipated for IWRP in year one, we were looking at uh, about $28 million worth of awards. Uh, we awarded $33 million. So that was fairly close. For fiscal year 20, uh, our original forecast was to award $35 million in prototypes. Uh, we're on track to award a little over $100 million worth of prototypes this fiscal year. So this is a complete explosion uh, and the usage of, of, of these prototyping capabilities. And, and it's just a great opportunity for the Navy to get that technology into the fleet faster. So when we look at the out years all the way up to 2023, 
Uh, I would absolutely tell you right now, based off of everything we're seeing, engaging with our workforce, uh, we will be on, on, on target to, to use that full ceiling, provide greater capability. Don Salee is the Acquisition Services Manager at Naval Information Warfare Center Atlantic. Our other guest from NIWIC Atlantic was Kevin Charlo, the Deputy Executive Director and Chairman of the Information Warfare Research Project Executive Steering Group. We'll post more details about IWRP at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. One more break, and when we come back, we'll discuss the recent changes at the top of DOD's civilian leadership chain. Retired Major General Arnold Pinaro joins us when we come back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You're listening to On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And it has been a tumultuous past week or so for the civilian leadership of the Department of Defense. First came the firing of Defense Secretary Mark Esper. By the next day, his chief of staff and the undersecretaries for policy and intelligence had been forced out too. For more on what it all means, retired Marine Corps Major General Arnold Pinaro, the CEO of the Pinaro Group and the chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association, joins us. I want to talk first about the sort of tumultuous week that we had last week in the DOD um, civilian leadership ranks. Um, I, I'm just wondering your take on how much that matters. How, how destabilizing were all those sudden changes in a lame duck presidency? Or is there a risk that a potential adversary might perceive those at least as destabilizing and, and see it as an opportunity to do something nefarious? Well, Jared, let me first say there are over 2 million people in the Department of Defense, not the three people that just got changed. You know, we have 1.3 million active duty personnel, 880,000 members of the Guard and Reserve, 750,000 defense civilians, and over 700,000 contractors that work directly with the Pentagon every day. So the main mission of our Department of Defense to deter and defend America's freedoms and citizens home and abroad continues to march. They have a saying in the Pentagon, Charlie Mike, continue mission, and that is occurring. Certainly, uh, when there are changes at the very top, adversaries uh, and allies can misperceive what is going on. Uh, but the chain of command is intact. President Trump is the commander in chief. That commands to the combatant commanders go through the acting secretary of defense, Mr. Miller. So there's no turmoil there. And none of our adversaries should make the mistake that just because there's a new person at the top, uh, that we aren't able to basically execute any military mission that we need. So people tend to focus on, you know, personnel changes, uh, particularly in a period where typically you don't see those kind of changes. Uh, but I would say uh, I personally don't see it uh, as destabilizing as some have reported it. Understand. Um, th- these are, of course, more in the policymaking realm than the operational realm. Realistically, how much can these p- three people do in, in the remaining time that this administration has left from a policy perspective, if anything? So I would say it's very clear to all of us that on January 20th at 12 noon, we will have a new commander in chief and his name is Joe Biden. And anything that gets changed here in the next 60 days, most of what will be done is will be done by the president and the sec- acting secretary of defense without the involvement of the Congress, which means the new president, if he wants to flip it back, he can certainly do that with a stroke of a pen. So I also, uh, it would be unfortunate if they were to implement 
some policy decisions here in this short-term uh, lame duck period that were not conducive to our overall national security. I certainly have no information that's going to occur, but let's say hypothetically it did occur, those things could be turned around very quickly. For example, if they were to withdraw troops from Germany, um, I would tell the 82nd Airborne, don't unpack your duffel bag at Fort Bragg because you're going to be going right back. Um, so again, yes, hypothetically it could happen, but again, uh, typically it does not. And even if it did, it could be turned around pretty quickly. In a normal transition period, how much of the key activity is, is handled by political appointees at that level versus the civil service who is going to be the continuity? And, and, and to what extent, if at all, do you think this complicates the transition process? Well, first of all, I would say you've got to recognize that in the Department of Defense, you have two main bodies that will continue unchanged. One is, as you mentioned, the career civil service, 750,000 of them. And in the Department of Defense at the Office of Secretary of Defense, uh, you have a, a large number, but you have the active duty military. You have the combatant commanders, and they're all relatively new, so there are no big changes coming there. You have the chairman and the vice chairman and the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They're all relatively new, and their tenures uh, are another couple, another couple of years at least. So none of that's going to change. That's really where the transition teams um, engage really on a day-to-day -day basis. And the other thing I would mention is probably one of the people that the senior members of the transition team are going to want to talk to uh, are the former two former secretaries of defense, Jim Mattis and Mark Esper. Neither one of them are encumbered by the failure of the head of GSA to flip the switch and start the transition. So if it, if it only drags out for another couple of weeks, I don't think it's going to be all that detrimental. Uh, Kath Hicks, who's leading the Biden transition team, highly experienced, strong leader with a lot of good people. And they're doing a lot right now without being able to get into the physical spaces of the Pentagon. That's a really interesting point. I mean, the fact that Esper was dismissed makes it a lot easier for Kath Hicks to talk with him if he's inclined to do so. Yeah. And I mean, and he's a good government guy. I can guarantee you should the Biden team, and I believe they will, I, I, it would be inconceivable that they didn't at the Kath Hicks or higher level, reach out to Mark Esper. He's going to be very cooperative and very helpful, as would Jim Mattis, as would anybody else that has things to bear. I mean, um, we go through these, you know, it's not that often that you go from, you know, one party to the other in terms of a transition. Most of the time, you're either in the second term of a reelected president um, or you're at the end of an eight-year term of a president. And so um, this one is, is different, but the Biden team appears to me, Ted Kaufman was Biden's administrative assistant when I worked in the Senate for Senator Nunn, and they overlapped 24 years. He's a good government guy. He wrote the Transition Act. Uh, they're pretty cool, calm, and collected right now. So uh, I don't see any panic uh, on the, on the president-elect team at all. I want to do just one more beat on the on the leadership shakeup, because I know you're something of a student of the Vacancies Act and, and DOD leadership secession issues. I, I think there's at least a non-frivolous argument that there's a conflict between the Vacancies Act and Title X and that Deputy Secretary Norquist is actually properly the acting secretary once Esper departed. Do you have a view on whether that's really a live question or, or, or whether it's something that matters? It just, just, it, just in terms of the fact that there is a question about who is properly the acting secretary. 
Well, I would say it does matter. And in 1986, when we wrote the Goldwater-Nichols Act, and I was the staff director of the committee, and we wanted to enhance civilian control of the military, we put a provision in that said, in the absence uh, of the Secretary of Defense, the Deputy Secretary of Defense shall be the acting Secretary of Defense and able to exercise all the statutory powers of the Secretary, because we did not want the Vacancy Act to be used. We wanted to make sure that the person would be someone that had gone through the Senate Armed Services Committee confirmation process, would be up to speed on everything that was going on. And I wish I'd have been smarter when we wrote that law because the Justice Department, way before this administration, as well as White House counsels, have opined over the years that the Vacancy Act takes precedence over Title 10 because unless you in the title specifically said it takes precedence over the Vacancy Act, uh, it does not. So the president correctly used the Vacancy Act legally, whether it was a good idea or not, I'll leave that to others. So I think next year in the Senate Armed Services Committee, we need to fix it so that the Vacancy Act cannot be used in the future where you can just bring somebody in that from the outside. I mean, he could have brought anybody in that was confirmed. He could have brought somebody from HHS. Right. He could have picked a GS-15 or hired that had been in the building for 90 days on the day the vacancy occurred and put them in. So we need to fix that. But but the way he did it follows the Vacancy Act. And unfortunately, I wasn't smart enough in 1986 uh, to, to, to see that. But it's clear to you that that was at least congressional intent at the time in 86 was for Title 10 to take take precedence? Absolutely. No question about it. We, we, we thought about that. And we also we did not want because it was enhancing civilian control of the military. Technically, he could have put an active duty military in. So we, we thought we had prohibited that. Now, the, the, the point is, the Modern Vacancy Act passed after 86. So, you know, we should have spotted it and gone back in and amended our provision. Uh, I certainly, as an individual, uh, not somebody with any authority or anything, I'm certainly going to be talking to the Armed Services Committee next year about fixing this. That's really interesting. Um, let's talk quickly about some of the opportunities and challenges for the Biden team as they come in. Conventional wisdom is the new secretary is going to be Michelle Flournoy. Is that obvious to you or could we see a surprise here? Well, certainly uh, Michelle is qualified overly qualified and for what I call the nearly impossible job of Secretary of Defense. She would be terrific. She would have the tremendous support, bipartisan support in the Congress, the support of our military leaders uh, and anybody that knows her. However, it's been my observation over the years. If I look back over the last 40 years, uh, 11 of the 13 people have served as Secretary of Defense have been not the people that were mentioned, you know, ahead of time. I call it the great mentioner, the game that we play in Washington, the speculating. Again, she would be terrific. Uh, I don't, I'm not connected enough to know who they're looking at. My, my line that I use uh, frequently is the people that talk don't know and the people that know don't talk. So I'm not in a position uh, to give you authoritative information other than to say I would be an enthusiastic supporter uh, should President Biden nominate Michelle Flournoy to be Secretary of Defense. And I think she would go through the confirmation process um, with great approval and, and great enthusiasm for that position. And quite possibly quickly enough to be confirmed by January 20th. How, how important is that to have, have somebody in the chair on day one? It's essential and it's the tradition and it happened with Reagan when he put Weinberger in, Bush when he put Rumsfeld in, the Senate Armed Services Committee. What the president does is 
he can't nominate anybody till he's sworn in. So right after he's sworn in, he goes over to the president's room right off the Senate floor and signs the papers for anybody he's nominating for the cabinet that day. The committee will already have had its hearing in early January. No matter who the chairman is, they will do this. They've done it. We've done it many times before. And if it's someone that like Michelle, that's widely supported and non-controversial, it's going to go through the Senate on January 20th. And it's really important. I mean, that's the way it worked uh, for Trump with Secretary Mattis. That's been the tradition. And I have no doubt the, the, the Senate recognizes for these key positions. Typically, the secretary of state uh, occurs, usually the secretary of treasury and, and some others. But for the defense, because of the fact that the secretary of defense is the only other civilian in the chain of command from the commander in chief to the combatant commanders, it's essential that that person is on board a full up round on January 20th. Last question for you, sir, and it's admittedly a big question. Whoever it is, what, what do you see as the biggest challenges and opportunities for this next defense secretary? I would say the biggest challenge is the fact that we are dealing with a country, an adversary, or whatever you want to call it in China, that basically has significantly improved their economic position, political position, military position, and technological position. And if we don't basically deal with that in the next decade, uh, we're going to be speaking Mandarin Chinese here in the not to do different future. And I mean that sincerely. I'm not, that's not hype. If you look at Everything the Congress has put out, if you listen to General Milley, if you listen to the senior military, if you listen to the people in the think tanks, this is the greatest threat that we face and we've got to deal with it. The greatest opportunity is we have time to basically change that dynamic. And what we've got to do is make sure for the dollars we spend that we get more bang for the buck and that we're dealing with the most serious threats um, and, and not uh, allow ourselves uh, to be pushed in the wrong direction. So. There's, there's a great pressure to adjust the strategy because we're going to be dealing with flat budgets. Trump proposed a flat budget for the future for 22 and beyond, and we now have the huge deficit pressures, and the deficit hawks have lost their amnesia they've had for the last couple of years. So we've just got to make sure that we get more bang for the buck against the most pressing threats that we face. Number one is China, and that we take advantage of America's technological genius and ensure that that we are applying that where our warfighters can basically uh, not have an unfair, so that our warfighters will have an unfair advantage on any battlefield of the future. Retired Major General Arnold Panaro, now the CEO of the Panaro Group and the chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association, joining us to talk about the recent leadership changes at the top of the Defense Department. Earlier in the program, we talked with Don Salee and Kevin Charlo from Naval Information Warfare Center Atlantic about the recent ceiling increase to the now $500 million Information Warfare Research Project and several prototypes that are now moving into production as part of IWRP. If you missed that discussion, we will post this week's full show, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash ondod. You can also listen to us via podcast. Subscribe to On DoD on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher 
and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details. If you look around, there are so many ways to make a difference. At Capella University, our FlexPath format gives you a different way to earn your degree. Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu.